It hasn't even been two months since the murder of Seattle businessman and community leader Devon Pickett Jr., but his family is already helping other victims of gun violence. Cairo News Radio's Heather Bosch reports. In this central district business called The Postman, there's a steady stream of people mailing holiday cards and packages. There are also those dropping off donations of toys, clothes, and gift cards. Okay. Business owner Kiana Rose Pickett explains. We're actually partnering with RISE, which is an organization that supports families that are victims of gun violence. It's a way of paying it forward. She says RISE, or Resilient and Sustaining Empowerment, is helping her galvanize community support to keep the business going after the death of her husband. Because without the community and stuff, our doors probably wouldn't open back up. Devon Pickett Jr. was shot outside the store in October. A suspect is in custody. Kiana says she and her children were one day at a time and sometimes one moment at a time. There's feel good moments, feel bad moments. The store she and Devon opened in 2018 is part of her family and the community. Neighbor Jana Picard agrees. It's so much more than a business, a whole neighborhood. We were so excited because we lost our post office up on 23rd and Union and then uh, the Pickett family came in and they're welcoming. And Which is why she dropped off a donation of toys. So it's a, the least I can do. With the holidays, we get a chance to really um, tap into like the giving spirit and also be able to receive. Heather Bosch, Kyber News Radio. Dim the lights. Wait for information. Most of all, obey your air raid warden. December 7th, 1941 is a date that will live in infamy, as FDR said, in the aftermath of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. But what about December 7th, 1942? Our resident historian, Felix Bennell, is here with a look back and a listen back to what happened 80 years ago today. Felix is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Felix, good morning. Morning, Travis. Yeah, last year's uh, 80th anniversary of the December 7th, 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor was marked as a major milestone, and there will, of course, be even fewer Pearl Harbor survivors left for the 85th anniversary of America's entry into World War II. So it seemed like a good occasion to look back 80 years to how that first anniversary was observed in Seattle on December 7th, 1942, which was a Monday, by the way. Uh, they had a moment of silence at 9.25 a.m., which was 7.55 a.m. Hawaii time. That's the time of the attack in 1941. I never figured this out before, but Seattle was only 90 minutes ahead of Hawaii in those days instead of an hour or two hours. So, something, the time zones change. Now, that silence included this very radio station, KIRO, as they called it in those days. There was a noontime war bond program at the Metropolitan Theater. That's a theater that used to be where that big main driveway is at the Fairmont Olympic Hotel. Our studio was Kitty Corner in the Cobb Building at 4th and University. And right out front was Victory Square on University Street. That's where they had war bond rallies and a big plywood pylon listing the names of war dead from King County. Now, that evening, they had a major drill, not just in Seattle, but all over Washington, Oregon, and British Columbia at 9.10 p.m. with a simulated air raid taking place for 10 minutes. They announced it with blinking streetlights and ringing traffic bells. I didn't know they could blink the streetlights. That must have been pretty pretty amazing. Um, people took shelter in retail stores. Cars were instructed to pull over to the side of the road. 
hit something like 80 smudge pots uh, around the city simulating fires, and crews responded to a pretend mustard gas attack in the business district. There was something like 50,000 volunteers involved here in Seattle and 150,000 staff of Civil Defense F all around the state, and the all-clear came at 11 o'clock. So it was a serious uh, civil defense effort on that one-year anniversary. Now, what got me thinking about all of this was some old audio I'd found from a show called Eyes Aloft. This was a special radio show like they had in those days, just for people on the West Coast, produced by NBC, aimed at something like 150,000 volunteers of a group called the Aircraft Warning Service, or AWS. Eyes Aloft aired once a week uh, from the summer of 42 to November 1943 on that station that was called KOMO uh, in those days back in Seattle. Now, the regular Monday night broadcast fell on December 7, 1942, so of course they marked the anniversary. Now, the best part is that they carried a live feature from right here in Seattle with a scripted and very stilted dialogue between an army officer and a civilian volunteer. We now take you to Seattle, Washington, where you will hear from Mrs. Negley England, Director of Civilian Components and Signal Officer Colonel Richard Calgren. We've come a long way since our first meeting 16 months ago, haven't we, Mrs. England? Yes, indeed, Colonel Carlson. <laughs> this anniversary of Pearl Harbor brings back many memories. Yes, but my 16 months of the Aircraft Warning Service seems small when I realize that as far back as 1939, you of the Army were actively engaged in laying the groundwork in this area for the AWS. But looking back to the first cornerstone of our present AWS here in Seattle, laid in July of 1941, I can remember the afternoon at your home, Ms. England, with 10 Seattle women to whom you have given the responsibility of each recruiting 10 other volunteers. Yes, we were out to form a group of 100 workers for the first filter center training. Not exactly David Mamet-style dialogue, no. but, you know, you get the, you get yeah. the picture there. Um, there were thousands of volunteer spotters and other civilians in urban and suburban areas. It turns out there were a lot of people out in the woods, too. I found a local former forester named Eric Wilhite. He's done a ton of research on the forest fire lookout towers that were conscripted for wartime use by aircraft spotters. You know, the same thing you could look for fires with, you could look for enemy aircraft with. He has a website. He's a mountaineer, so he's visited something like 570 of more than 700 locations where aircraft spotters were stationed. Now, when I first prepared this story a few years ago, he told me how the system worked. They put people on the ground, sometimes on mountaintops, sometimes on, on in the valleys where they had a big view of the sky above them. And they would, they would just station there 24 hours a day. And if they heard any sort of aircraft, they had to jump out of their little little houses or huts that they were living in, and look up in the sky, and then immediately report that they spotted an airplane. And it didn't matter if it was enemy or not; they reported every single airplane. Now, Eric Wilhite's still searching for and still finding previously undocumented lookout sites in his research and travels. He told me yesterday he finds a new one about once a year, including this past summer. Upon a remote peak in the North, North Cascades, he discovered a mile-long abandoned phone line going up the summit of an unnamed peak where they had a spotter back in the days. Now, I also talked to Ray Kresick. He's the founder of a fire lookout museum in his backyard in Spokane, which I visited this past summer. When he was a little boy in Olympia during the war, he watched both his parents volunteer for the war effort. His family lived with rationing food and other consumer products. We talked for a long time about the history of fire lookouts, and I asked him if growing up during the war shaped him and what he values. He better did. It made uh, us really value our freedom, and uh, it made us value what we had, and you don't waste uh, to this day, I'm frugal, and I, it was a result of what we went through in the war when you didn't have. Now, uh, in honor of that anniversary, let's hear one more clip from the Eyes Aloft episode of December 7, 1942. Um, the 4th Fighter Command Oath of Allegiance from Lieutenant Colonel John C. Gray will be administered, and you may want to stand up while we're doing this unless, of course, you're driving. 
And those of you volunteers listening in at your radios, wherever you may be, we ask that you, too, repeat the pledge with us. Will all volunteers of the Pacific Coast please rise? The 4th Fighter Command Oath of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the United States of America and to the 4th Fighter Command and to the, of the United States Army Air Forces and to the mission with which it is charged and to the mission with which it is charged the protection of the Pacific Coast and of the nation the protection of the Pacific Coast and of the nation from invasion by enemy aircraft from invasion by enemy aircraft it's uh it's you know, this it, i don't think they won any acting awards no. was it? but uh the the thousands of volunteer hours of people committed to this project of just civilian defense during world war ii is pretty amazing and the the changes on this city a year later were incredible including you know japanese americans incarcerated yeah. in camps in the inland i mean there's it's a very complex story it's yeah. not this simple black and white story that it was when we were kids even um but it's weird how the past is receding too i mean pearl harbor it was such a big deal when i was a kid in the 70s it was like a, a holiday yeah. this. I mean, now it's just it feels like world war one felt to me when i was a kid so right time marches on and we're losing so many folks who Absolutely. fought in that war every my, day both of yeah. my grandparents are granddads are, are dead and they both fought in the war and yeah. I, I had a chance to actually sit with my grandpa before he died with a recorder and like had him tell oh, me his stories you. good for you so those are the kind of things that i hope people have done with their loved ones absolutely well. felix thank you very much for 34 years, Cairo News Radio listeners have donated to Holiday Magic. It's a program that benefits Treehouse, a local nonprofit supporting foster kids at Christmas and all year long. Cairo News Radio's Darren Dito introduces a Tacoma woman whose life changed after getting her gift nearly three decades ago. Tosh Haynes says 28 years ago, she got a present she always wanted. I mean, I remember I can actually physically see myself opening up that box and seeing that camera and what it did for me. It was the Advantix film camera, the exact one Tosh wanted during Holiday Magic. Whoever bought that camera for that 12-year-old girl was just like probably on a whim, just being like, I have a little bit of extra money. I'm just going to do this. And that changed my entire life. My whole family eats off of this gift. Tosh says while growing up in foster care in Tacoma, she didn't have many photos. That's why she wanted a camera to capture new memories. One day I'm going to have children. I never want them to wonder like what I'm what I was like or what my childhood was like or who I was. And so that's that's what I loved about photos is like they kind of told that story or they allowed you to imagine what the story was. She eventually upgraded her camera when she got to college. And when I was studying abroad, I lived in Austria. I had a film camera. So that was like the next camera up. It was like the first camera I could buy myself. And I just took pictures of like everything that I saw. What started as a hobby would soon become a profession for Tosh. She had an eye for telling stories through her pictures. As I like learned how to work the machine and as I was taking pictures of other families, like I started to see like my heart in my work. Like I was seeing like my des- like what I envisioned as a family or the kind of family that I would want came through in my photography. Hosh encourages people to donate during holiday magic because their generosity will make a real difference for foster kids in our community. That's why her family continues to pay it forward. It's allowed me to invest in other people's lives and other children's lives. And it's allowed me to create a family where I'm raising children to be philanthropic and to also give back to other kids that are less fortunate. Tosh and her husband feel blessed to have a very successful photography business. Also being able to raise three amazing daughters. Darren Dito Cairo, News Radio. 
This is Seattle's Morning News. I'm Travis Mayfield sitting in for Dave Ross, along with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan as well. We want to talk about ranked choice voting. Seattle voters just narrowly approved ranked choice voting here in the city in the most recent election. But there's a push to make it a statewide thing, which is why we want to bring in Stephanie Houghton, Managing Director for Fair Vote. Stephanie, thanks for being here. Fair Vote is saying you want to see this rollout statewide. First, start with what is ranked choice voting? Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Starting from the beginning, ranked choice voting is an upgrade to our elections. It means that instead of choosing just one candidate, voters get to rank their candidates in order of preference. So I'm going to vote for Joe, and I also like Sam. Um, I might say at the top of my ballot, my first choice is Joe, my second choice is Sam, and oh, well, look, then um, Cindy is running as well, and Cindy is my third choice. Absolutely. And if you didn't want to vote for Cindy, you wouldn't have to. You can rank candidates or, or not. You can still choose just one if you prefer that. And then how's the counting work? How do you count that up? The counting works that uh, once all of the votes are in, if no one has achieved 50 percent, no single candidate has achieved 50 percent, then we eliminate the person who got the least number of votes and we redistribute those votes to everyone who is still in the running until someone gets to 50%. And again, if somebody gets to 50% after the first round, they win the same way they do now. In Seattle, it sounds like it's basically going to be city level elections. So Mm -hmm. if I want to vote for a candidate, you know, for my city council and there are four people on the ballot, I would say, oh, I want to rank Colleen is number one. I want to rank Stephanie is number two. And then if there's somebody else that I could be interested in, Travis, I could rank him as number three. And that if nobody gets to 50 percent, then we eliminate Travis and my. My second choice, the voters who voted for me, their second choice, that becomes their first choice. And then that oh, goes into their okay. column okay. as well. Yes. Got it. And then if somebody, somebody gets to 50 percent, then that's the candidate. I get it. So, Stephanie, why is this better than the way we're voting right now? Uh, this is better because it allows voters to vote the way that they actually like think about candidates, the way that we all think about things in our daily lives. Right. We rank things all the time. Ranking your candidates means that you're able to vote sort of with your whole self. You don't have to choose between the lesser of two evils. You can rank the candidates that you like without having to worry about, oh, this candidate might not have a shot or I really want to support uh, women candidates and there's more than one woman here. I don't have to split that vote. You just vote your whole self. And it means that voters feel better represented. And, And we know that people who use it say they want to use it again. The other part that I think is really worth noting in this time of really contentious, harsh campaigning is that Ranked choice voting means that candidates have to talk about policy. They, the personal attacks, that doesn't get them anywhere because they want voters to choose them second. So they're not going to go after like some other candidate in a really like dramatic, terrible way because they, they still want to get those voters, even if it's only for second. So we also see that there are candidates who actually support other candidates in the race. You've got to talk about policy. And I think that if we go back to talking about policy rather than talking about 
what this person is like, mm-hmm. uh, that that's that's better for our system overall. It's better for voters and it's better for candidates. So narrowly being approved here in Seattle, that, that that's where we're going to move toward in future elections. But your group wants this to be something that voters statewide would do. Explain to me what you're pitching and how you would go about doing it. Is this an initiative process? How, how do you think you'll convince all of Washington to move to ranked choice voting. Sure. I want to push back a little bit on what you just said, that ranked choice voting itself did very well. We had a 75-25 margin. As far as actually making the change, yes, we squeaked over that line. I think that that has more to do with the setup of the ballot question, um, which was confusing to say the least, than it does with an actual this is ranked choice voting is barely popular. I I think that that's just not something that we can say coming out of the Seattle race. But getting to your larger question, we are thinking about ranked choice voting as a statewide movement because it's a nationwide movement. It was on the ballot in 10 places across the country this year alone, you know, over 50 locations, including two states, use ranked choice voting to elect their representatives. Maine and Alaska uh, send people to Washington, D.C. using ranked choice voting. So for us, we're thinking about what is the best way to work with voters, to work in communities, to do the education required uh, to get people on board with ranked choice voting. And part of that is we've had two bills now in the um, in the down in Olympia. One is a local options bill, um, which would just essentially allow localities to use ranked choice voting if they wanted to. The other one is a presidential primaries bill, which would mean that when the presidential primaries happen every four years, voters who choose to participate in those elections would be able to rank their candidates, which I think is a really interesting way to introduce people to ranked choice voting. The last presidential uh, primary for Democrats uh, in 2020 had over 20 candidates on that list. So I think ranking candidates for those races would just be a really great way to ease people in to to ranked choice voting. When might voters in Washington state get a chance to decide if they want to do this? We are still working out our game plan, um, but we are we have we have thousands of supporters across the state already. And we are working with them sort of individually uh, and in groups to work with their local um their local groups, their local elected officials. We've had multiple cities and counties sign on to say, like, we're interested in this. We we want this. So as far as when are we going to be able to be putting this question to the voters, I don't want to put a strict timeline on that, but we're already talking to voters. Stephanie Houghton, Managing Director of Fair Vote. Appreciate you joining us this morning on Seattle's Morning News. Thank you so much for having me. It's time for the Daily Dose of Kindness now. It is sponsored by Heritage Homecraft, a 12-year-old boy from Iowa, a bona fide artist. Arsh Paul's talents were realized at just eight years old, and his work has really taken off since. But praise for his talents wasn't enough. 
he wanted to do good and began selling his canvas paintings so he could donate to St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital and help kids with cancer. Originally, my first goal was raising $1,000 for St. Jude Research Hospital. And everybody kind of doubted me because I was so young. But when I did raise $1,000, everybody was surprised. (laughs) Over the past four years, he has surpassed that by a lot. Paul has raised more than $15,000 with his art for kids with cancer. He was also recently honored with the Diana Award for his efforts. The award is named after Diana, Princess of Wales, for her belief that young people have the power to change the world. Hi there. Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. This is Travis Mayfield in for Dave Ross. I have Colleen O'Brien and Sully is at the traffic desk working hard this morning. Yeah, we yes. also have G. Scott hey. in, in the studio. G and Ursula show weekdays 9 to noon. All right. Quickly, we have to look at the big board. You and Ursula are still beating Seattle's Morning News oh in the gosh. auction. Every show is beating Seattle's Morning Even Even Cairo Knights with Spike O'Neill. What? I know. He's got $400 on his studio visit. We're at 230 you guys are at like four fifty. Mm-hmm. How are John and Sherry at fourteen hundred? Somebody like Sully must have came in and put down a big chunk. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm spending lots of money on things that aren't out of state tuition right now. <laughs> so, anyways, if you want to help raise money for Treehouse for foster kids, go to mynorthwest.com/slash/holidaymagic. You'll see the auction list, and uh, yeah, throw us a bone, will you? I'm having like extreme anxiety. It's like taking me back to high school during homecoming and prom, where mm. people are voting, yeah. and you know it's a popularity contest, right. not really anything. <laughs> and so I'm like. Like, oh, God, we're only up $5 from yesterday. But it but it matters. It matters but because it, the money goes to foster kids. And remember and remember, our parents used to say, oh, that just doesn't matter. Don't you worry. You just be a good person and go to school. <laughs> Meanwhile, the same parent goes to work. Vote for me. Yeah. Vote for yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do have anxiety right now, though. It's fun to win. I mean, I, yeah, I have anxiety about the topic that you're going to talk about oh, after yeah. this. Oh, this yeah. topic Ooh. right here is something that is a, this is near and dear to my heart and is something. Something that when I, as you guys know, I do a lot of events outside of doing radio, uh, whether I'm doing an auction, whether I'm the MC. And the one thing that happens for me when I get the run of show and I get names of people that's going to be in a crowd, names. Yes. Oh, when yes. I get names and I am having to study how to say their names, mm-hmm. because and here's why. Because if there's one thing that I believe that um, that all of us want done right is our name said right? Yeah. right? That's, that's all yeah. we have, yep. right, is our name. And so especially when our name is being said in front of a group of people, right? And so this is my, this is how I look at things. If I say uh, Travis Muifield. Yeah. <laughs> I feel bad. In a, in a crowd, yeah. in a crowd of 500, yeah. I basically told the crowd that Travis doesn't matter. I understand. Yeah. I under I feel the same, especially as a broadcaster. It's it's a nightmare because your scripts are riddled with names. I don't know how people in sports broadcast you. I don't know how anybody yeah. does it in sports broadcasting because that is 
all name based, at <sighs> least for us. Like if, if if a suspect doesn't need to be named, we can say the suspect, you know. Right, right. But yeah, name pronunciations is a big deal. It, it's the list of most mangled words of the year. That's why we're talking about this and some of the examples on here. And I'm I'm going to try. I wanted you guys here so that you could help me. Yeah. Chick Chulub, the crater in the Gulf of Mexico caused by the asteroid that scientists say they likely caused the extinction of dinosaurs mm. or Donal Gleason. The Irish actor. Oh, Donal. It's Donal. I guess so. Donal Gleeson. And this one is interesting. Edinburgh. Instead, lots of folks say Edinburgh. It's Edinburgh. I would get that one right. Yes, you would. You would? Edinburgh. Bruh. Could you see the bruh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Edinburgh. I, I need you to go there and walk through now, Edinburgh. <laughs> now, here's one that got me. I was in the newsroom before coming in yeah. here, and and of course James is helping me out. Adele. 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 Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, right there, you say that. What were you saying? Well, it says don't say Adele. Oh. Yeah. But it's Adele. 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 Yeah. I didn't know that. See? Yeah. It's not Adele. So if you got to walk around, oh, I love Adele. You're saying it wrong. Right. And the problem is for a lot of these words, like the Chicxulub, which is that crater you talked about, is that it doesn't even look like it says Chicxulub because there's an X in there. And there's too many vowels for my brain to figure it out just by sight reading. I would need a pronunciation guide. And the thing about how to pronounce things. Just like you, the three of us right now could all say the same word mm-hmm. and there's a good possibility we might say it different. Yes. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Antibiotics. Like all, we, we, antibiotics. That's you what antibiotics? I say. Antibiotics? Yes. Oh. You don't say antibiotics. Right. See, I didn't know that was weird. And somebody texted me yesterday and where, where did you grow up? Why did you say antibiotics? And I'm like. I don't know. That's what I've always said. Yeah. Is that not right? Our boss, uh, Charlie Harger, he just asked me if I was from the South because I said wildfire in like one of my <laughs> newscasts. And I said, no, I think just my mouth just goat wildfire. Oil, rural. When I when I first got into doing radio, I, I used to just like pulling back behind the curtains, guys. I used to go home at night and practice mm. because I wanted to sound yeah. quote normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And I thought I'm not going to make it in this business because people keep texting in and saying, why do you talk like that? Why do you talk like that? Oh, I'm sorry. And now man, I talk how I want to. Yes, you, you do. do. We say love what it. the hell I want. That's Anytime. celebrating G. <laughs> or mm-hmm. G. Yeah, we love oh. it. <laughs> Seattle's Morning News. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien. In for Dave Ross, we have Travis Mayfield, Sullivan, of course, getting you on your way. And we have Tom Douglas of Tom Douglas Restaurants joining us because for our holiday magic fundraiser for Treehouse for Foster Kids, Tom Douglas has an auction item that is quite exciting to bid on. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining us and, and thank you for your involvement in raising money for Treehouse. You know, we've been doing this at Cairo for a long time uh, mm-hmm. through my show on the weekends. It's just such an awesome charitable organization to be part of. Well, I'm proud to be part of it. Yes. And and who wouldn't want to bid on this package? So you get to uh, go if you bid on this. It's for eight people total. You get to go do a class at Tom Douglas's Hot Stove Society. It's a year round cooking school operated by you. Uh, it sounds like a, a why don't you describe the, the class for us if you can? Well, it's an awesome team that I have there. We're a bunch of different chefs from different backgrounds, so we can do lots of variety of food from a dumpling challenge. You know, you get eight of your friends together and we'll just kick some butt on each other and make different dumplings and 
or uh, sometimes we do a paella class. A lot of people have never made paella, mm. the Spanish national dish, and it's just a, it's super fun to learn and the technique of getting the sacra, which is that crusty bottom without burning it on the bottom of your paella, so that it, you know when you when you eat it, you get that caramelization. And so we're all about uh, being brave in the kitchen and hot stove, teaching people how to be really comfortable with darkening things, right? Because caramelization is key in the kitchen. Uh, and so we, we do all sorts of different kinds of classes uh, with masa masters, uh, everything to do with masa, making empanadas, making torti- fresh tortillas. We're just all about having fun. So those you eight people, you eight lucky souls that are helping out Treehouse are welcome to join us. We'll have to set the, you know up a time that we can all meet together and then uh, go from there. I know that your cooking school, Hot Stove Society, is inside Hotel Andra in downtown Seattle. And it sounds like mm-hmm. you just have absolutely outfitted this to the nines with the booze <laughs> work tables, KitchenAid stoves. I mean, top of the line stuff. So as somebody who is literally right now teaching myself to cook because I never learned how to cook as a kid. or Travis, even as a, Travis, I know. Travis. I'm intimidated. <laughs> Do I need to be intimidated to bid on this? Not a bit. I mean, we'll take you under our wings and, you know, we just have fun. And the only reason people don't cook is they lack the confidence to kind of jump in. And that's what we we try to give you is that confidence in the kitchen. And whether that's knife skills or whether that's how to caramelize roasted broccoli or make a vinaigrette or whatever it is that maybe is intimidating you, that's what we teach you at the hot stove. And I get to do it with my friends, seven of my friends. And then we get to eat it afterwards together? You bet. You know, we, we get all dirty. We bring, give you an apron to wear. And then we uh, just in three or four minutes, maybe five, we wash up and the table is set. We all sit down to have a meal together. And, and uh, you know, one of my favorite things is to kind of tell stories at those meals. Why do you support Treehouse? Why was this important to you to get involved in? Because uh, so so often... You know, we write a check and we move on, right? But this is an opportunity to kind of really think it through and understand the good that we're doing for our community. Mm-hmm. And I know in the past, too, you've uh, taken some of the treehouse foster kids under your wing and, and you've been able to give back even to the children there. So you've been such a great supporter of this effort for 34 years, Tom. We really appreciate yeah. you. And that was the coolest to have these kids come in who sometimes are living on the street. Sometimes they're in a broken home. Sometimes they're in a fabulous situation, but they're but they're shy, you know, uh, to have them come in and just get to express themselves through the food that they eat. They come from all different cultural backgrounds. Uh, it, it, I learn often as much as I as they do. I learn about life in that world, in the foster care world, and they learn about cooking from me. And I think if there's one thing we can all agree on is that people find commonality. They find common ground. They find love for one another over food. Exactly. And I've had a couple of those youngsters come in. They they actually have assisted uh, some of our chefs teaching another class because they were so excited about the whole event. Wow. You've inspired. You know, there's a lot of hams out there. There's a lot of people that want to get up on that stage and then show what they got. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're just you're changing the world one little chef at a time. We appreciate you, Tom (laughs) Douglas. So if you want to bid on this uh, package for eight people at the Hot Stove Society, you get a a cooking class operated by Tom Douglas. It's going to be wonderful. You go to MyNorthwest.com slash Holiday Magic and make sure you hit that bid button. Tom Douglas, thank you so much. Hey, you know, Colleen and Travis, thank you so much for being part of this. Uh, I'm happy to be part of the Cairo team for so long. 
Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.